Second Samuel chapter 11 this morning. Second Samuel chapter 11. I love the sound of rustling Bibles. Verse 1, now it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields shall... I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote it in a letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, 
and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Father God, thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, that this is not a book that is written to paint false pictures about anybody. Thank you, Lord, that it is the truth. Even when the truth is hard for us to see. I thank you, Father, that we can learn lessons from a man like David, both good and bad. All of which help us in our walk with you. So I pray this morning as we look at this story. So different from every other story we've looked at in the life of David so far. That, Lord, you'll be our teacher today. Fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord God, to say those things that need to be said. Protect me from saying anything I ought not. Help us, Lord, today. Father, to learn from this terrible, tragic chapter in the Bible. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse number 5, it says, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Chapter 11 marks a turning point, does it not, in the reign of David? His behavior in the matter of Uriah the Hittite would mark him from this point on. You know, if when we started our little series on lessons from the life of David, if we had done a little uh, association thing, you know, if I had said to you, I'm going to mention the name David and you tell me the first name that comes to your mind, many of you would have no doubt said Goliath. David and Goliath, that usually comes up. But many, maybe more than half of you, would have said Bathsheba, David, and Bathsheba. You see, this chapter is a turning point. David's name and reputation are now forever damaged by what took place here. So much so that now, oftentimes, when the people hear the name David, the name Bathsheba is the first one that comes to mind. Now, before we dig into this chapter, there's some important things we need to get out of the way. Uh, we, We need to make it very clear about what this chapter is about. And before we can understand what this chapter is about, we have to understand what this chapter is not about. This chapter is not about adultery. And some of you are sitting there saying, now, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Clearly, it is about adultery. No, adultery takes place here, but that's not what the chapter is about. It's not about lying or deceit either. Some of you might be thinking, I have never in my life seen a greater example of lying and cover-up and deceit than is described here in these pages. And it is true. That that did happen here. But that's not what this chapter is about. It's, It's not about murder either. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, you know, Uriah might have something to say about that. Or Joab, who was complicit in that disgusting murder. Yes, murder happened here, but that's not what the chapter is about. This chapter is not not about male and female relationships. This chapter is not about the power of a king over his subjects, the power of a man over a woman, or the power of a woman over a man. All those things are discussed in here, but that's not what the chapter is about. This chapter is about sin, and that's all this chapter is about. And if we do not understand that, we have missed the entire import of the chapter. It's about sin, the reality of it, the result of it. And if we get into the next chapter, chapter 12, we see the redemption from sin that comes when we repent of it. All of those things we can learn from this event in the life of David. We're not going to be able to do it all one week. We're going to have to take a couple of weeks for this one. But Lord willing, I want to try and cover all those things if he doesn't come back first. And this morning, I want us to just think about that first one I mentioned. I want us to think about the reality of sin. 
and what this chapter teaches us about that. Because boy, it does. The reality of sin. And I think we see the reality of sin described here uh, really in the characters, all four of them. There's actually five characters here, but I'm going to completely ignore Joab. He's, he's not important to our discussion today. But there are four characters here that we do need to see. And every one of them tells us something about the reality of sin. Obviously, the first one would be David. The reality of sin is seen in David. He's the primary character here. And so let's review a little bit about just what happened in this chapter. Probably was pretty clear, but let's review. David, the warrior king, hung out in his house while his armies went to war. Sitting around idle, bored, lounging around his house, he decided to take a a walk on his rooftop. Now that was very common in those days because the houses were built with flat roofs, and the flat roofs actually were part of the living quarters of the house. And as a matter of fact, if you'll go with us to Israel in June, you'll see that it's still the case today. The rooftops have all kinds of things on them, and uh, they're part of the living space of the house. And so David lived in a palace. His rooftop was higher than everybody else's, and he could have seen down. Also, anybody who was down could see up, but the king was walking on his roof. And so David looked down, and he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her house. He looked, he wanted, he inquired, he sent for her, and he took her. And as often happens when that particular sin is practiced, she became pregnant. David tried to cover it up by bringing her husband, Uriah, home from the war front, encouraging him to go home and sleep with his wife, but he was much too honorable of a man to do that. And so David's plan failed. And desperately, David wrote a note to to Joab, telling him to make sure that Uriah died in the battle. Isn't it astonishing that he handed the note to Uriah? Because Uriah was such an honorable man that David knew he would never read the note. And so Uriah carried his own death warrant to Joab. And of course Uriah died. And when David heard of Uriah's death, he sent for Bathsheba and married her. We can't read this story, but but, but we react with stunned silence, can't we? How could this happen? In the annals of the world, there have been so many terrible and heinous and horrible crimes and sins committed, but certainly this one is up there. It's high on the list, and it was David, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist and shepherd of Israel. Up to this point, he's been so vocal, so focused on living for God and loving God and telling others about God. David, such a hero of the Bible. So we come to this point in our study and we just have to hang our heads, don't we? We don't know how this could be. From lesser men, we might expect such behavior, but from David. Well, consider a few thoughts about that. Consider a few things that we learn about the reality of sin from David. And the first one kind of is is that, what I just said. It happened to David. David was just a man. You know, you and I are not immune to sin. We are in danger of it every single minute of our life. If it could happen to a man like David, it can happen to you, and it can happen to me. 
One man said the various arts and stratagems by which the king tried to cajole Uriah till at last he resorted to the horrid crime of murder. The cold-blooded cruelty of dispatching the letter by the hands of the gallant but much wronged soldier himself. The enlistment of Joab to be a partaker of his sin. The heartless affectation of mourning and the indecent haste of his marriage with Bathsheba have left an indelible stain upon the character of David and exhibit a painfully humiliating reproof of the awful lengths to which the best of men may go when they forfeit the restraining grace of God. Did you catch that? The best of men. That phrase certainly fits David. I've shared the quote with you many times, the best of men are men of best. That certainly fits David. As I prayed over this passage, I sent an email out to several godly men, and I asked them for their thoughts and to share their, their, their insights in this passage as I was preparing this message. One of them responded back, even the mightiest of men are not exempt from the power of temptation and sin. Amen. That's the reality of sin. Now, we ought not to be confused by this story. Some people read 2 Samuel chapter 11, and they walk away thinking, what a bump David was. You see some people's lips sneer as they read this story, thinking, oh, that an evil man. But, you know, such, frankly, are fools. They're not getting the point. David was not a bum. He was not an evil man. He was David. You would be hard-pressed to find a godlier example of a man in the pages of Scripture. And here's the point. If it could happen to him, it could happen to me. It could happen to you. The reality of sin is that it is real, it is ever-present, it is powerful, it is something you must be on guard against always, because it will trip you up, no matter how secure you might think you are against it. A second thought here about the reality of sin from David. David was not doing his job. Instead, he was laying about his house. We ought not to ignore that simple truth. He wasn't doing his job. Look at verse number one. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Jerobah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You know, just as our president is supposed to function as the commander-in-chief of our armed forces, so too David as the king was the commander-in-chief, if we could use that term, of his army. And the implication in this verse is that David was not doing his job. He was shirking his responsibility. He, he gave it off to Joab, and he stayed back behind. You know, if David had been at the front, where he should have been, he would not have had time to think about Bathsheba, or time to laze around on his rooftop looking for trouble, or time to spend in an illicit affair with the wife of one of his mighty men. You know, the fact is, busy people are less likely to get into trouble. It's a simple truth. When we were little kids, we, also, we often used to hear, uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Do you remember that? Most of us parents have used that on our kids because our parents used it on us. The fact is, who better to say amen to it than David here? He was idle. He was laying about his house. He had nothing to do. And the reality of sin is that such situations make us ripe for a fall. Such idleness places us in danger. You know, I think in America today, we would do well to ask ourselves whether it's wise for us to spend as much time laying around our nice cushy homes as we do. This is particularly of interest to us in this affluent country. 
You know, too many of us claim to be too busy to serve God. Too busy to participate faithfully in the corporate services of His church, which He commands us to do, by the way. Too busy to use our spiritual gifts, which He has entrusted to our care and will one day give an, a demand an accounting of from us. Too busy. And yet, for the most part, that's seldom the truth. What really is true is that we like our quiet living rooms. We like our big screen TVs. We like our lazy boys. We like our air conditioning. We like our personal time too much. And I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to anybody else here today. I have a chair that I very, very, very much like. Too many of us need to see ourselves in David here, though. See ourselves and recognize ourselves. And we wonder at the failure of marriages and, and at the wandering from the faith of our children and the skyrocketing corruption and wickedness that's all around us and even in our churches. We look at David's example here and we see the reality was sin pounced when he was idle. Sin pounced when he had taken a break from serving God and he was too comfortable. Number three, another lesson that I think we learned here about the reality of sin from David. Verse number two, David looked where he shouldn't have looked. It happened one evening, David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Many of the brothers who shared their thoughts with me this week, matter of fact, I think all of them, pointed out this same thing. They all caught this truth. David looked where he should not have looked. One brother said, sin takes a similar path most of the time. David's sin traced almost the same steps as Achan's in Joshua 7. They both saw, took, coveted, concealed something that did not belong to them. These four verbs are off on the path to disobedience. And that, that, that is true. That's an interesting study, and I'd recommend it to anybody. But did you notice the first part of it? In both cases, they both saw, they both looked. It started with a look. Let me speak just for a minute to the men and to the boys here today. Because the particular temptation and sin described in this chapter has specific application to us. Sexual sin is a grave danger to each of us as men. David, David was not immune. Neither are you. You know, this is only one of a couple things in the Bible that we are warned not to fight against, not to try to stand firm against, but to simply run from it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee fornication. Run from it. I sometimes preach about the dangers of television, and I see eyes roll. But you know what, brothers? Young, old. We cannot look at images of half-naked women on television and not be affected by it. We cannot do it. I sometimes talk about the evils of the Internet and pornography and the wickedness that pervades all that. And I see some look away, but you know, listen to me, hear me this morning. You cannot handle it. I cannot handle it. David could not handle it. Some years ago, way back in the 80s, Mazda Motor Company had an advertising campaign for their cars. And they had a little slogan that said, just one look. That's all it took. The fact is, that's all it took for David. That's all it takes for a lot of us. 
It's too strong. We can't fight it. Don't try to build up some immunity to it. Don't try to build up some resistance to it. Please don't say, I'm spiritual enough to handle it. No, what the Bible says we should do is run like a scared ape from it. That's the only answer to it. And girls, you are not immune from this. I just read an interesting study the other day that said 25% of those who are viewing pornography online right now, girls and women, run. And parents, for your kids' sake, do not allow them unfettered access to the Internet. Do not put a computer in their bedroom where they can close the door. Do not do it. You ought not even do it with the television. I trust my kid. It's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of the reality of sin. Have you heard what we said? Did you listen to point number one? It happened to David. It could happen to anybody. It's not a matter of trust. We need to protect our kids. Richard Baxter said, keep as far as you can from those temptations which feed and strengthen the sins which you would overcome. Lay siege to your sins. Starve them out by keeping away the food and fuel which is their maintenance and life. David looked where he should not have looked. Number four, David didn't stop with a look. Verse number three and verse number four. We see that looking became wanting. Wanting became inquiring. Inquiring became taking. Taking became lying. Lying became murdering. And before you know it, temptation, which is not wrong, had become sin. You know, the reality of sin is that what seems so small can become so big so fast. When David first had that lazy impulse that he had to stay home, I don't think a thought came into his mind that said, you know what, I'm going to lay around the house and plot the murder of my good friend Uriah. That thought didn't enter his mind. He didn't say, I think I'll figure out a way to have an illicit affair with the wife of my good friend Uriah. He didn't think that. He just had a desire to just kind of lay around. It started extremely small. Just as one person said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. David's sin became a snowball of horror that grew to include deception and even the murder of an innocent man. And as we continue our study, and we will, we'll see that it didn't stop with chapter 11. It didn't stop with chapter 12. As a matter of fact, this affected his life for the rest of his life. It followed him to his grave. So it didn't stop with a look. And then number five. David could have stopped this at any point along the way. He could have stopped it. When the initial temptation to idleness entered his mind, he could have said, I am the king. I am the commander-in-chief. This is not right. And he could have not allowed himself to do that. He could have shook it off. When the glance from his rooftop revealed something he should not see, he could have left the rooftop and stopped looking. He could have left it at a look, even if it turned into a lingering look. He still could have walked away, rather than inquire about the woman's situation. And once he found out who she was, should that not have been the greatest red flag? Should he not have immediately have said, oh, this is the wife of my friend? He could have slammed on the brakes. At any time along the way, David could have stopped. He could have chosen to do right. He could have said no to this situation. Aristotle said, Secular Aristotle said, what it lies in our power to do, it lies in our power not to do. 
Aristotle further said, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who overcomes his enemies. That was secular, worldly Aristotle. How much more then uh, is it true that those of us who are indwelt by the Spirit of God can say no to some things? You see, that's another reality to sin. We don't have to do it. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful who will with the temptation also make a way to escape. Every place along the way, he had an escape route if he had chosen to take it. We can say no to sin. Joseph faced a similar situation, did he not, in the book of Genesis, when Potiphar's wife tried to tempt him into the same thing? Some might even say his temptation was worse because she had power over him. She could force him in a way to do it. But he said no, and he ran from it. David could have done the same. Listen, brothers, sisters, little brothers, little sisters. (laughs) Look at the great King David here. Sinking into ruination. Plummeting from the heights. Remember his great victory over Goliath? How he has fallen now into the cesspool of adultery and deceit and cover-up and even murder. You know, last week our message was entitled, I am David, let us not be David, as he is described in this particular passage. Let us learn from him to fear it, to hate it, the reality of sin. We need to pray as the Puritan prayed, work repentance in my soul, represent sin to me in its odious colors that I might hate it, melt my heart by the majesty and mercy of God, show me my ruined self and the help there is in him. Well, David's the main character, and so we spent the most of our time on that. But there are three other characters, and they all show us something of the reality of sin. So just for a minute, I'll, I'll just spend a few seconds on each one. Let's talk about the reality of sin as seen in Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Verse number two says he saw a woman bathing. You know, we all want to find excuses for sin, don't we? But there are no excuses. Nobody gets a pass for sin. We're all responsible for our own sin. We certainly are not trying to minimize David's sin in this chapter. Absolutely not. I hope we've made that clear. But neither do we minimize Bathsheba's sin. I remember watching an interview one time with Mel Gibson. He was, he was uh, talking to some talk show host about his movie, The Passion of the Christ. So whenever that was, a few years back. And the interviewer was trying, as interviewers often do, to get people who are trying to represent Christ. They try to get them tripped up. They try to get them to say something politically incorrect. And they were trying to do that. This person was trying to do that with Mr. Gibson. He was trying to get him to stress that the Jews were responsible for the death of Christ. And he was asking, is that what you're saying in the movie? That the Jews killed Jesus. And Mel Gibson's response was, nobody gets a pass. And I'd like that. I don't know anything about Mel Gibson's relationship with God at all. But he was right there. Nobody gets a pass. And although some would like to let Bathsheba off as an innocent here, we simply can't do it. Nobody gets a pass. The reality of sin is that sometimes it takes the form of looking, as with David. And sometimes it takes the form of luring, as it did with Bathsheba. It was simply sin for Bathsheba to expose herself on the roof of her house in a place where she knew that David would be able to see her. 
It was simply sin for her to show herself to him in such a way that he would be tempted. Ladies, girls, listen to me. I know that you're not going to hear this on television. And I know that the internet and the world and the magazines that you read, I know that none of them are going to tell you this. They're actually going to tell you exactly the opposite. But the fact is how you dress matters. It matters. Immodest dress is sin. David gets no pass for turning toward the temptation, but neither does Bathsheba get a pass for initiating it. He saw a woman bathing. Verse number four, she came to him. She came to him. She could have and should have stopped anywhere along the way. And I can hear the, I can hear the cries in people's minds right now. Oh, pastor, he was the king. He was all powerful. She had no choice but to obey. That's the argument that you so often hear. And if that argument is in your mind, I encourage you to go and read a little bit more of your Bible. And I would suggest you start with the book of Esther. And you go read the story of Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti, who was asked by the king, commanded by the king, to perform a lewd performance in front of his dinner guests. And what did Queen Vashti do? She said no. She wouldn't do it. It cost her. It cost her the throne. She was no longer the queen. It cost her her marriage, it cost her her security, it cost her all kinds of things, but she's evidence to us we don't have to sin, we can say no. Read a little further in that book about Queen Esther and see the times that Queen Esther, a couple of times, risked her life to go before the king. He had the power to destroy her. Nonetheless, she went before the king. Now, Bathsheba did not have to obey. She could have said no. The reality of sin as seen in Uriah is also interesting. And we only have a second, so I'll just mention just one thing about the reality of sin seen in Uriah. What a, what a guy Uriah was. And I, I do wish we had more time. Think about him for a bit. Read 2 Samuel 23 and read where he's listed in the, in the, the list of David's mighty men. This was, a, this was a warrior. This was a tremendous guy. So much we could learn from him. But for the sake of time, there's just one thing I want to point out about the reality of sin from him and that is this, our sin affects other people why do bad things happen to good people that thought comes to so many people's mind, I hear that question all the time, uh, just on Father's Day we showed a little video up here and there was a video of a father with his kids and various different little scenes and there was one scene where the father was sitting on the couch with his little boy and they were watching the television and the scene of the bombing in Boston was on the screen. The little boy was heard to say, uh, Dad, why does God allow things like that to happen? It's just another way of saying why do bad things happen to good people. And of course, the Bible is filled with all kinds of answers for that. One of the answers for that is because sometimes we bring it on ourselves. We sin, and our sin causes bad things to happen in our life, and our sin brings the chastisement of God. But you know what Uriah tells us here? Uriah shows us that sometimes it's because of the sin of others. Uriah didn't do anything here. He knew anything wrong. But the sin of others affected him. And that's the reality of sin. You can't do it without it without its affecting somebody else. The sin of parents affects their children. The sin of children affects their parents and their brothers and their sisters. All of us affect others with our lives. One more, the reality of sin is also seen in God. Verse number 27, when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
Has there ever been an example, a better example of understatement than that one in the Bible? The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know, God had made clear his views on adultery. He said way back in Leviticus chapter 20, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. He made it very clear his views on sin in general. In Ezekiel chapter 18, the soul who sins shall die. And the greatest reality of sin that we see throughout this whole story is not anything that we've discussed so far. The greatest reality about sin is that it was not ultimately against David or against Bathsheba or against Uriah or against any other people. It was ultimately against God. The thing that David has done displeased God. You know, in the next few weeks we're going to continue this study and we're going to, we're going to find out that David repented of his sin. And that the Lord put his sin away. And the ending is glorious and good. We're going to look at David's great psalm of repentance. Psalm chapter 51. And we're going to see David's heart revealed there once again as he gets it right. And we're going to see that he understands this. He's going to say in Psalm 51 and verse number 4 against you, God. You only have I sinned. It seems almost like a footnote to the story, doesn't it? The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But it's the very center of it all. The reality of sin is it is an affront to our holy God. Our sins displease God. Well, I'm done. We've seen a lot of different things here about the reality of sin. And next week, Lord willing, if he has not come back, we'll see a little bit more about the results of sin in chapter 12. And we'll see the wonderful, wonderful redemption that came to David when he repented of his sin. And I want us to leave with that thought in mind this morning. This has been a dark passage, but it has a wonderful ending. Don't you thank the Lord that it didn't stop with verse number 27? Thank God there's another page after verse 27. Thank God that the story continues on. David repented of his sin. He was restored to favor with God. When you get to chapter 12, you're going to see Nathan confront him with his sin. And David's going to say, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan's going to say, the Lord also has put away your sin. And David's eventually going to be able to sing again. He's going to write Psalm 103 where he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquities, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from destruction. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Hallelujah. Nor punished us according to our iniquities. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Hallelujah that the story doesn't end with verse 27. What about you this morning? Have you dealt with the reality of sin in your life? Have you recognized the fact of it? Come to understand the danger of it. Come to see the depth to which it displeases God. If so, do you want to do something about it? If so, then you need to do what David did. Confess it. Repent of it. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who already paid for it on the cross of Calvary and who will take it away from you forever if you but ask him to. Timothy Keller said, Jesus is the only Lord who if you receive him will fulfill you completely and even if you fail him, will forgive you eternally.
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all that is the greatest reality of sin.